My warning today is that this episode will feature sexual assault and violent crimes against a child. Thank you for listening. I'm Haley. I'm Andy. And this is Dead Endings. episode I spoke about Jane I mentioned a few other murders of young women that were occurring in Ypsilanti at the time oh yeah in this episode we're going to discuss these women and their deaths the next episode I will get into more of the investigation and the man they arrested for the murders but I really want to speak a bit about each of the girls because it's so easy to almost forget the reality of their lives mentioned Mary briefly in the last episode, but Mary Fletcher was the first of the co-ed girls to go missing in July of 1967. And even though it's been 54 years since her murder, her family still runs a website dedicated to her and her memory. I love that so much. I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Mary Therese Fletcher was born on December 4th, 1947 to Chester and Teresa Fletcher. She was their first daughter, but Mary had three brothers and three sisters altogether. So it was a big so family. So many fucking kids. So many kids. She was from Willis, Michigan, where she grew up on her family's farm in a house that her dad built himself. Also living on the farm were two aunts and an uncle, as well as her grandparents. She grew up not only with all of her siblings, but all of her cousins as well, getting to run around this big farm together. I love a multi-family home. Mm -hmm. It is so precious. And it's kind of nice that they didn't all have to be, like, under one roof. It was just, like, all on one property. So it's easy to be like, go to your aunt's house, go to your grandma's house. But they don't have to, like, leave the safety of their farm to do that. Mary's mom sewed her dresses and Mary's dad braided her hair. And it seems like Mary's childhood was absolutely loving, just beautiful, with this big, huge family. And every Christmas Eve, there was traditional Polish food and celebrations with both sides of the family. And Santa would arrive on Christmas Eve in person to hand out a present to each kid. Oh, Santa. They were all good kids. (laughs) None of them were on the bad list. I love that. Um, Her family called her Chi-Chi. Chi-Chi. She taught herself to sew, paint, knit, draw, play piano, and more. In school, she played bass drum in the band and timpani in the orchestra. She sang in the choir, was a member of the language club, and she was yearbook editor and on National Honor Society. Yeah, I don't have any of that, like, kind of discipline to teach myself (laughs) those things. Like, can you even imagine just trying to teach yourself piano? Like, you have to read music. I fucking hate learning how to read music. (laughs) (laughs) See, I've learned how to read music from a very young age, so it's just... It's just naturally. Yeah. <laughs> I just look at it, I'm like, cool, different language. I sometimes <laughs> forget that other people can't just read music. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I remember learning in class, was it like, every good boy deserves fudge? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the lines, and yeah. the spaces in between are F-A-C-E. All I, I do struggle a little bit for, like, the higher notes and the lower notes that happen, where it's not actually on the, um... <laughs> but what's it? The bars? I say as so I'm like, I know how to read music. <laughs> but I remember because when I was in orchestra, I would always have to like think extra hard about when it's like a lower note with like a line through it. I'm like, okay, that would be this. Whereas when they're on the actual lines, I know exactly what they are. Oh, man. 
job, Haley. It's hard. Good job, Mary. Yeah, good job, Mary. <laughs> um, her favorite band was the Beatles, which is very fitting for the 60s. She was what people would call a Beatle maniac, even going as far as painting their portraits. <laughs> yes. Which was a little bit intense. I love a fangirl, though. But we talked about I can't really judge because all of my binders were covered and pictures of the Beatles in high yeah, school. Yeah, tons of stickers. Yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, I still, like, I have books and, like, all sorts of... Oh, I know. <laughs> I've seen them. My Beatles books. <laughs> so I get it. Uh, during her first year of college at Eastern Michigan University, she lived off campus at home, and she was studying accounting as well as French at Eastern. In the early summer of 1967, 19-year-old Mary planned a trip with her younger sister Sandra and two friends. The girls traveled to Montreal to attend Expo 67, which was like a world fair being held over the course of a few months. Mary and her group went in June, and Mary had done all of the planning, like out the route, which way they were going to go, um, what they were going to do, and they had a blast. So organized. Yeah. Wow, that does sound like a lot of fun. It was like their first grown-up trip going together. Yep. Getting away from home. No adults. They are the adults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that horrifying moment when you're like, I'm the adult in the situation. <laughs> After the trip, Mary was back at Eastern working in the field service office and living in an apartment with her friend Nancy, who also worked at the same office. On July 9th, 1967, Mary woke up and got dressed in an orange dress with white polka dots and some new straw weave type sandals she had bought earlier in the summer. She walked a few blocks to church and attended an early morning mass before heading over to the university to get some work done in the office. Around noon, she received a call from Sandra that she and another cousin and friend were going to, they were going to be going to Silver Lake and they invited Mary to join them if she could get away. Mary eventually headed towards Silver Lake, but didn't arrive until about 5 o'clock and was turned away by a state trooper at the entrance because there was no more parking. Oh. Well, I, I mean, it's understandable, but it freaking sucks. Yeah. So Mary drove a few miles west to Half Moon Lake to see if her sister and friends had possibly headed there because she wasn't sure if they had maybe been turned away to. In the area of no cell phones. Yeah. But she didn't find them there. She still spent a little bit of time at the lake playing her guitar. And she was seen by, like, a mutual friend, like, who was hanging out at the lake before she headed back home. Sandra and the friends, though, stopped by Mary's apartment after they had spent the day at Silver Lake, having no idea that Mary had tried to meet up with them but had been turned away. And Mary's roommate Nancy told them that she was out and wasn't back yet. So her sister and the friends waited for a little while. But when Mary still didn't show up, they left. Okay. Having missed them again, Mary arrived home not long after they left, and I guess the living situation with her friend wasn't going super smoothly. Roommates it doesn't fucking hard. It doesn't seem like it was super toxic, but you know how it is trying to live with people, especially when you're still young and you're in college, and her roommate's boyfriend was always at the apartment. I think Mary spent a little bit of time hanging out with them before being like, this is weird. I'm going to go, you guys can keep playing house, I'm going to go for a walk. Yeah. Um, and this is a little before 8.30, she left for her walk. Mary didn't seem to have a destination in mind, but was just going for a stroll to get out of the apartment, maybe to see who she ran into. It's a college town, you're just seeing where your night goes. I, I loved walking around town when I was younger. Like I, It was just the thing to do in a small town where there wasn't really that much else to yeah. do. So a neighbor saw Mary walking back home around 8.45, 
so not long after she left, like within 20 minutes, when a car pulled up along next to her. The driver slowed down and said something to Mary, and Mary shook her head and kept walking. The car sped off, circled the block, and came back around, pulling into a driveway in front of Mary, blocking her path, which is so creepy. Yeah, that's why I don't I like around. that. The driver Ooh. spoke to her again and again. Mary shook her head and walked behind the car and continued on her way. The car pulled out of the driveway and sped off, and the neighbor watched until Mary was within sight of her own apartment building. Ah, oh, good neighbor. Good yeah. Samaritan. The next morning, Sandra received a call from Nancy asking if she'd heard or seen Mary. Mary had never returned home from her walk. Sandra called their mother, who headed over to the apartment, and she noticed that Mary's car wasn't parked in its usual reserved spot, but was at the other end of the parking lot, which was strange. And I still don't really understand. Like, if it got moved by, like, I I don't know. If somebody moved it, why would they move it? Yeah, I... Because that's what I, like, that's what I was wondering, too. Like, and maybe she got in it and was going to drive away and then was stopped. But then why would she, what would convince her to get out once she was in her car? I would want to stay in my car after a creepy situation like that. If that had happened after the creepy situation. Like, a car pulling up next to her. Yeah. I'm sorry, but, like, when he, or they, I don't know knowing that the neighbor saw her shake her head no, I'm just imagining this person being like, you're really hot. Get in my car right now. Do you want a ride, babe? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and she's like, oh, no, thank you. Nope, this is creepy. So Mary's mother called the field service office where Mary worked and was told that Mary hadn't reported into work that day. And Mary's mother called Mary's father, and he told her to call the police right away. They knew that something was wrong. The police took the information, but Mary was a college student who hadn't been gone even a whole day yet, and the police just kind of went, huh, I bet she'll turn up. Give her time. But this is, like, so far from her personality. Like, Like, if parents are telling you that this is not normal... They should listen to them. Listen to the parents. Take that into account. So the Fleshers had a horrible feeling of impending doom almost immediately. They knew their daughter. They knew this wasn't like her. And they just, they knew something was wrong. Her father later said that that first night that he knew he wouldn't see his daughter again and that she was gone. Oh, that's so, that gives me shivers. When a few days went by and Mary still hadn't turned up, the police assigned Ronald Shoemaker to the case. He had a daughter who was Mary's age and he took the case more seriously, even though there wasn't much to go on. Someone should take it seriously. Like he could relate. Yeah. was like, okay, yeah, if this was my kid... I would be concerned, too. We need to find them. Yep. So police were unable to identify the driver of the car, which the neighbor described as possibly, maybe, being a bluish-gray late-model Chevy, but the lighting wasn't good, so the neighbor wasn't sure, and it could have been something else. Which, like, thank you for watching her walk to her apartment (laughs) building and get within sight of it, but that description is not helpful. Not at all. Shoemaker had her car searched by police technicians for any evidence, and some items from her apartment were taken and sent to the lab in Lansing, Michigan, in the hopes of identifying any fingerprints that weren't Mary's, just in case somehow, some way, she met with foul play under different circumstances. Yeah. They were just covering all the bases. Good. Because realistically, like, they don't know that maybe she did get home and maybe something had happened with Nancy and the boyfriend. Not that, not that it did. But yeah. just if you're a police officer, like, you need to... Make sure all of it's cleared yeah. off. Yeah. 
The detectives even went so far as to investigate a waiter that Mary, Sandra, and their friends had while at Expo 67 in Canada because he had exchanged addresses with the girls and had promised to write. But that didn't pan out. Weeks went by and nothing else came up in the investigation. Yeah. <laughs> just imagine <laughs> being a waiter being like, I didn't hurt her. I was waiting this table in Canada. Yeah, he was just like, uh, they didn't even tip me either. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna write. But. <laughs> so on August 7th, 1967, about a month later, two teenage boys were about to get to work in an overgrown field less than a 10 minute drive north of where Mary was last seen. They were going to be doing something with a tractor. I don't know what yeah. tractors are really used for. I'm not a farmer. But as they were getting started, they heard car doors slamming nearby and thought they heard multiple voices. They decided to be nosy and try to sneak over to where they could hear the car and the property because sometimes, like, teenagers would use it as, like, a lover's lane, like, yeah. kind of meetup. And even though it was, like, morning, middle of the day, they're like, oh, what's going on over here? Like, people are loud. I love loud, like... people are nosy. They're just like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they heard the car pull away, and as they approached the area, they could see tire marks and could smell something decaying. Oh. Which, honestly, isn't that much of a red flag, especially in farmland, like, in the summer. Like how sometimes you'll be driving with your windows down in the car and you can be like, oh, something is dead nearby. Oh, yeah. Going up north yesterday, there were so many dead deer. So at first they thought that they had the same thought, like it's just something's dead nearby. But then they saw a dark mass on the ground and something about the sight of it didn't look right. At first, like, okay, maybe it's a deer. But as they got closer and the longer they looked, they were like, oh, no. They reported a possible body to police who, again, at first responded a little casually. Why? <laughs> and the police were said, it's probably a dead animal, but we'll send somebody out to check it out. The police officer that arrived was like, um, yeah, guys, I don't think this is an animal. So they sent out the county's assistant medical examiner who was like, guys, this is a person. Yes. This is a human. Thank goodness somebody is just taking it seriously like come on the cops in we, this town is so ridiculous right we now. got there we got there eventually <laughs> they're like mm. she'll turn up it's probably just an animal and then that police officer's like i don't think this is an animal when police oh. searched the area surrounding the body they discovered a pile of discarded clothes under some nearby cardboard and some of those items of clothes included an orange dress with white polka dots that had been cut open down the front Nearby was a woven straw sandal, and there was also underwear that had been torn, as well as a white bra which the straps had been torn from. With Mary Fleasure in mind, Detective Shoemaker went to Mary's parents with the sandal, and her parents immediately identified it as Mary's. Mary's identity was confirmed through dental records. It was, in fact, Mary that the two boys had found, and she had been laying in the field for the entire month. A whole month. Because of this, some of the details of her death were uncertain. Police determined that Mary hadn't died at this location, but it's where she'd been left. There were a few spots in the area that had signs of decay, which indicated that Mary had been moved more than once since the time of her death, but it's unsure whether it was she was moved by the killer or by possible wild animals. Each spot was just a few feet away from each of the previous spots, and there was evidence of, like, bite marks on some of the bones indicating that animals had, had gotten to it. Been there. Yeah, that's, that's awful. 
But there were paths in the grass that led up to where Mary lay, and police took this to be signs that somebody had come back to the body on more than one occasion, and that possibly more than one person had been there, but I feel like that might be a stretch to be like, there's paths in the grass, maybe two people, like maybe they just took different paths up to her body each time. Yeah. Mary's autopsy was done the day after her body was found. One of her hands was missing and some fingers from the remaining hand was missing as well. It's not known for sure whether this was animals or something the killer had done. Both feet had been severed at the ankle and there was no evidence there of animals like chewing or any sawing. It seemed that her ankles and the bones there had been smashed. Oh. The lower part of each tibia and fibula bones, which are the long bones in your calf, were shattered, and there were some broken bones in her hand, too. The medical examiner located some abrasions along her body, which implies that Mary had been beaten, and she also had a long cut wound along her back. Because of the extent of decomposition, it wasn't evident on whether or not Mary had been sexually assaulted. Even though she had been clearly beaten, what most likely killed her was the 20-some stab wounds that she suffered to the chest and torso. Mary's parents asked a few times to see their daughter, but police tried to kind of gently advise them against it, telling them, like, this isn't the last image you want of your child. I can give them credit for that, because definitely hope that they just kept her memory alive and, like... Yeah, and her her parents did end up agreeing, and they stopped pushing to see her body. Mary's body was transported to a funeral home to prepare for her funeral and burial to take place on August 12th, and on the evening of August 10th, a young man drove up in a bluish-gray Chevy and parked around the corner from the funeral home. The man got out of his car and approached a maintenance man at the funeral home, asking him if he could see Mary Fletcher's body. The man told the employee that he was a friend of the family and wanted to get a picture of Mary to essentially remember her by. Um, that's... Nope. He was told, uh, no. Yeah. (laughs) And the man, yeah, the man left. But he hadn't been carrying a camera. (sighs) Mary's parents had no idea what possible family friend could have been trying to see their daughter's remains and take pictures of it, supposedly, before her burial. Police staked out Mary's funeral looking for anyone who would fit the vague description of the young man or anyone driving a bluish-gray Chevy with no luck. A year went by before the next girl went missing. Joan Elspeth Schell was a student at Eastern Michigan University. She was born December 1st, 1947, to Sylvia and James Harmon Schell, which was just a few days before Mary Fletcher was born. Joan was born in Sheboygan County in Wisconsin, where both of her parents were from. She was one of four girls, being the second to youngest. At some point, Joan's family moved to Plymouth, Michigan, and I don't know when or why, but I would assume it's for work opportunities. Yeah. Um, According to Michigan Murders by Edward Keyes, Joan's father was the assistant manager at a department store in Detroit. All right. Joan had just finished her sophomore year at Eastern, and she was majoring in art. At the time, Eastern produced a lot of teaching professionals, so complete speculation, but possibly she was pursuing a degree to teach art. Be a cool art teacher. I I don't know what other jobs people get when they major in art which isn't like i'm not shitting on that like that's an awesome degree i just don't know what people do with it but she was working on campus for the summer and renting an apartment with her friend susan which was about three blocks from where mary fleasure lived when she went missing 
So very similar circumstances of working on campus, living with a friend, living in the same tiny area. Yeah, that's, that's a little disturbing. Joan was petite and had dark brown hair to her waist, which I'm very jealous of. It looks very healthy in like the pictures that I've seen. Joan had spent the weekend visiting her parents in Plymouth, which was less than 20 miles east of Ypsilanti. And on Sunday, June 30th, she was dropped back off by her parents in Ypsilanti after dinner. Joan had planned that evening to see a man named Dale, who was technically her fiancé. They'd been together for three years, and her parents did not approve of Dale, who was AWOL from the army. <laughs> he was staying and working in Ann Arbor under a fake name. So Joan and Dale's engagement was like a secret. It had to be if he's AWOL. Yeah. <laughs> Joan spoke with Dale on the phone after she got back to her apartment and agreed to catch a bus to Ann Arbor to see him. She went to wait at the bus stop, and her roommate tagged along to wait so that she wasn't alone. Which yes. Good, good job, Susan. But the bus drove past a little while after 11 p.m. without stopping. Oh. <laughs> what the frick? <laughs> it appeared to be full, and it just kept going. The bus driver's like, I won't let these ladies stand. <laughs> they can just wait another round. So now as an adult, when I think about this, I'm like, that would be the end of my night. I'm going to just go to sleep. Yeah, it's Watch a, a show. But I would be, that would be the end of my evening. Yep. But Joan was stubborn, and she was 20 years old. She had all this energy. Yeah. <laughs> she wanted to see her fiancé. And so she wasn't going to let this hold her back from her plans. <laughs> If she couldn't catch the bus to Ann Arbor, she would hitchhike there, which at the time so many people did, and it wasn't uncommon. But not long after, a red convertible pulled up, and it had the, like, black hood cover thing on it, and there appeared to be three young men inside. Joan asked if they were going to Ann Arbor, and they told her they were, and Joan started to climb into the back. According to Susan, she tried to stop Joan and be like, hey, don't do this. Yeah, like... Yeah, which is what a good friend would say. But Joan promised to call her and let her know when she got to Ann Arbor and climbed in anyway. Susan said that she watched the car drive away and proceed to turn in the wrong direction if someone were headed to Ann Arbor. But Susan went back to the apartment and she received a call at 12.35 a.m. from Dale looking for Joan. Susan told Dale about Joan getting into the car, and they decided to call the police. Because at this point, it's been like an hour and a half, and it's only like a few minutes drive from Ypsilanti to Ann Arbor. Susan called the police while Dale went out with friends driving around looking for the car that matched the description Susan gave him. The McKenney Union custodian, which is nearby, told police that he had seen three white males in the building after it was supposed to be closed that night. Another custodian told them to leave, and they checked the doors to see if the boys had broken in, but there was no sign of a break-in. Somebody had a key! And he had seen the boys get into a car and then pull away. There were a handful of other witnesses who saw the car that night and had seen Joan get in, but there was a lot of conflicting information on what model and make was, and whether the taillights looked square or not... And I just, I'm going to be honest, I don't know much about cars. Some said it was a Ford. Some said it was a Pontiac. No one is sure. <laughs> I, like, I know the difference between a Ford and a Pontiac, though. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I... I don't. I, <laughs> yeah. I've had a lot of cars. I could... There's, like, a handful of cars that I would be able to identify. But, I mean, yeah, I understand. Like, not a lot of people know about cars. Like, <laughs> to me, I'm just, like... Ford compared to a Pontiac. Come on now. 
No, I, I give him grace. <laughs> <laughs> we each have our areas of knowledge. Yes. On July 5th, 1968, roughly 10 minutes from where Joan was last seen, construction workers along Glacier Way in Ann Arbor smelled the distinct smell of what they believed was a dead animal. Obviously, we can guess based on the subject matter of this podcast that it was not a dead animal. It's never a dead animal. (laughs) I think sometimes it is. I hope so. I'm excited for those moments. (laughs) After inspecting the source of the smell... They discovered the body of a woman left off the side of the road, and the workers immediately notified their foreman, who notified police. The woman's body was being transported to the morgue within an hour of her discovery. There was little to no blood in the area, and police determined that she had most likely been left there sometime before 8 a.m. that morning when the workers had arrived. However, while they were trying to investigate the scene of the crime, officers had to contend with an intense rainstorm, which meant that the scene, which probably already held very little evidence, would have even less and be harder to examine. At the University of Michigan morgue, Dr. Robert Hendricks performed the autopsy on the woman. Robert Hendricks had also helped with Mary Fletcher's autopsy the year before, and the body of the woman was identified through fingerprints and dental records as Joan Shell. Joan had been stabbed 25 times. Three of the stab wounds were to her back, and the other 22 were to various places on her upper body. One of her lungs and her liver had been punctured, and her left carotid artery had been severed. Oh my gosh. Her skull had even been fractured from the blows from the murder weapon, which was assumed to be a knife, and her dress was pulled up and wrapped around her neck. There was evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Based off of her stomach contents, it was determined that she had most likely died around 1 a.m. on July 1st, 1968, about two hours after she was last seen. Officers notified Joan's parents and her mother, who had heart trouble, immediately collapsed. She had to be seen by a doctor, and at Joan's funeral, she was a wreck, and Joan's sisters had to physically support their mother and hold her upright. Yeah, I I can see that. I can see why. Joan's body was in a unique state. I have some theories about why it is that way. And obviously police and Dr. Hendricks had some probably more professional, legit theories. The upper half of her body appeared noticeably different from her lower half. Her lower half had been decently preserved and appeared as though she had died recently. Hmm. Dr. Hendricks believed she would have had to be kept around the temperature of 40 degrees Fahrenheit for this portion of her to appear this way, but the upper half of her body was in a significant state of decomposition. There was insect activity, her skin had discolored to black, and it was starting to pull back in areas like her face. The theories were that she had been kept partially covered, or that wherever her body was for those few days possibly had a window that only shone light on the upper half of her body and not the lower half, so it was cooler. But my thoughts are also that all of her stab wounds were inflicted on the upper part of her body, and open wounds like that are usually the first things that insects are attracted to. Yep. So there's a good chance that that would have, like, sped up the decomposition. Right. And I imagine she had, like, significant blood loss when her carotid artery was severed. Oh, yeah, of course. So I think that those combined with whatever factors existed in the environment could explain why her body was in the state it was, but it was bizarre. Yeah. Joan's boyfriend was immediately a suspect. He was found and brought in. He was given a polygraph, which he passed, and detectives believed that his grief was real, so Dale was released to military police because he was still AWOL, which sucks. Yeah, that really does suck. He he just lost his fiancé, and now he has to go 
or, or military or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, to be like, you don't know where your fiance is. You find out she's dead. You find out you're a suspect. Now, never mind, you're not a suspect, but we're going to hand you over to the military police because you are AWOL. I mean, yeah. Over 150 red cars with black tops were investigated all over the state with no results. The Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti police met and discussed comparisons between Mary's case and Jones, but each department decided that they would consider the case's isolated incidents for now. Okay. Eastern Michigan University campus police received a call a few weeks after Jones' death. Someone who worked in one of the offices of McKinney Hall was harassing a coworker with details about Jones' corpse. When the student employee was asked how he knew these details, he claimed that his uncle, Daniel Like, was a Michigan State trooper and had told him. When Corporal Like was asked about this, he said that the only discussion he'd ever had with his nephew about the case was that Like wasn't assigned to it. So this nephew is freaking weird. They didn't discuss details, and Like said that his nephew often hung out at a restaurant regularly visited by off-duty police and would chat with them, and he suggested that his nephew could have gotten information there. Like's nephew, John Norman Collins, told police that he was in Centerline, Michigan, about 50 minutes away visiting his mother when Joan had gone missing. Police did not follow up on that alibi or try to find out for sure where he'd gotten the information about Joan's body. Oh, this young man was visiting his mom. Why Why question that? I think maybe the relation to the state trooper helped him in that, where they just said, oh, he's just kids. Nepotism. <laughs> Those, oh. those darn kids. Talking to the police about weird things, wondering Knowing about weird cases. corpse details. What the? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so 1968 slowly turned to 1969, and on March 21st, Jane Mixer was found murdered in a cemetery in Denton Township a few miles away after she was reported missing. She had arranged a ride home to the west side of Michigan to see her family, but never arrived and was found the following morning, having been shot twice in the head with a 22 caliber gun and a ligature tied around her neck, which, and we talked about her in the last episode. If you want more information, check out our last podcast. The next victim was found the day after Jane Mixer's funeral. Marilyn Skelton was born on March 4th, 1949 in Wayne County, Michigan to Archie and Helen Skelton. It's said from some sources that her parents were both heavy drinkers and that Archie had a temper. She grew up in Romulus, which is about 15 minutes east of Ypsilanti. Marilyn had an older brother and an older sister, and she played clarinet in the school band and was reportedly an intelligent kid. At the age of 15, her IQ was recorded to be 123, which would be considered above average. Hell yeah, she's smart! (laughs) Around the time she started high school, though, something changed in Marilyn. She had started making her way over to Ypsilanti and hanging out with the older kids around the colleges. She seemed to really connect with the hippie crowd of young adults and their use of drugs. She was too cool for school. (laughs) (laughs) She was lying often to her parents about where she was going and what she was doing. In the fall of 1968, Detective Beverly Scannell was called to Marilyn's school by the counselor there to talk with Marilyn. She had been in trouble for truancy and bad behavior, and Beverly spoke with her, and Marilyn confessed that she had been taking a variety of drugs regularly for the last two years since she was 13 years old. Wow. Marilyn had been smoking pot, as well as using acids, speed, and various uppers and downers. She admitted that she was in really deep and wanted to get better. Clearly, Marilyn needed help, so Detective Scannell made a deal with Marilyn that she wouldn't press charges or get Marilyn into trouble 
if she would become a police informant. That's the exact kind of help she needed, not rehab being a snitch. So again, a 15-year-old child admits that they've been heavily using drugs since they were a 13-year-old child, and this detective says, okay, you're going to be an informant at a high school and tell on college kids. What the heck? Oh my gosh, Beverly. Yeah, she could have done better. There is no evidence that Marilyn was a particularly good informant. (laughs) I wouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) No. But a few months later, in January of 1969, Marilyn was hospitalized, and her mother told everyone that Marilyn was having complications related to the flu. Mm -hmm. I think that she had told people that Marilyn had taken too many flu shots, or gotten too many flu shots. It's the flu shots. Not all of the heroin. Or like, like, why acid. would she be going and getting a bunch of them? You just need one. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, Marilyn had actually overdosed on heroin. Spot yeah. on. <laughs> Beverly Scannell did try to confront Marilyn's parents at this point, but they were heavily in denial. While in the hospital, Marilyn had a lot of her hippie friends visit and check in on her, including her boyfriend, 19-year-old Michael Millage. She had met him in the counterculture scene she was a part of in Ypsilanti but her parents were not fans of Mike or Marilyn's other friends. But it seems like they had kind of given up on parenting Marilyn at that point. Yeah. Flu shots. Yeah, they were done trying to look out for their daughter. And on March 4th, 1969, she turned 16 years old, and Mike Millage gave her a ring and asked her to marry him, and she said yes. Yay. Which is this? She's a kid. I know. It's like, I just They're cringe. both kids. <sighs> Which is like, I'm happy for her. She's trying to get out and, like, live the life she wants, but it's, like, so hard because it's just, like, you guys are babies. All around the same time as this, Archie Skelton had accepted a job in Flint, Michigan, which is an hour north, and the family decided they would be moving closer to the new job. But Marilyn did not like this plan. Oh, it's going to take her away from her friends. Yeah. Not long after she agreed to marry Mike, Marilyn was caught with amphetamines while at school, and authorities believe she was selling. Marilyn was arrested, but her parents argued for her, saying that they would be moving her away from all these bad influences up to Flint, (laughs) where she could get a fresh start. (laughs) Flint is not necessarily like a a nice, clean, fresh start area. Yeah, a little crime rate. Um, anyway, um, police agreed to drop the charges, but warned her that if she was ever caught in Wayne County again with drugs, she'd be facing charges. The family was in the process of moving their belongings to Flint during the last half of March 1969. During Marilyn's first week in Flint, even though she didn't have a car, she managed to sneak away to Ypsilanti three times. (laughs) Three times. Three times. (laughs) Marilyn said that she would be marrying Mike Millage over the weekend of March 21st and that she would live in Ypsilanti with him instead. So on Friday, March 21st, which was the day that Jane Mixer was found, Um, Marilyn went with her father back to Romulus in a U-Haul to pick up the last of their things. That night, she hitchhiked to Ypsilanti for a while looking for Mike, but when she didn't find him, she went back to Romulus before morning. The morning of Saturday, March 22nd, they finished loading up anything they needed and started to head back to Flint. And then this is where the story gets a little bit... Confuzzled. Discombobulated. (laughs) So at 4 o'clock that day, Marilyn called her friend, 17-year-old Sharon Santucci, from a payphone outside of the Arborland Shopping Center, which is about halfway between Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Marilyn said that her father had dropped her off at the gas station nearby and wanted to know if Sharon could come pick her up. 
but Sharon's husband, John, had their car. So Marilyn and Sharon planned to meet at McKenney Union on Eastern's campus, and Marilyn said she would hitch a ride and see Sharon soon. She's just so confident with hitchhiking. They've got a plan. Yeah. Sharon lived near Eastern campus, so she walked over to meet Marilyn there, but Marilyn never showed up. Sharon started calling around to their mutual friends to see if anyone had heard from or seen Marilyn, and no one had. Mike called Archie and Helen, who were unconcerned, Uh. and they figured Marilyn would turn up. Marilyn's friends called Ypsilanti police around 12.30 a.m. Sunday morning, but they were told that people can only be reported missing by family. That's such bullshit. So Mike called Marilyn's parents back a few times and essentially guilt-tripped them into reporting their own child missing. Good for Mike. Helen put in a call to Wayne County Police, where Romulus was, to report Marilyn missing at 2 a.m. on Monday, March 24th. Helen did use this opportunity to complain to police about her daughter and her daughter's friends. Nothing about, like, oh, I'm concerned about my missing daughter. Yeah, she was pretty much like, she's missing. I don't know why her friends are so freaked out she's done this before, but I guess I'll report her missing. And at this point, three women in the last year had died in the area, had been murdered. So the same morning, a crew was working near the same subdivision where Joan Shell's body had been found the year before. There was an empty house that the surveyors were working around, and one of them noticed something laying in the grass behind the house and sent out others to see what it was. It was the body of a young woman, and the call to police came in around 11 a.m. The location was off Earhart Road near Glacier, just yards from where Joan Shell's body had been left. Mm-hmm. With the bee on the lookout having just been sent out that morning, Beverly Scannell was contacted and asked to come ID the body that they suspected was the missing Marilyn. Beverly had been in contact with the detectives prior to check in on the case, and Scannell gave a positive identification that day that it was Marilyn. Oh my goodness. Police believe that Marilyn had been killed sometime between Sunday night and mid-morning Monday. She had gone missing Saturday afternoon evening, yeah. which means that they believe that she was alive for at least a day. Oh, my God. The owner of the house that surveyors were working around had just been there the day before on Monday to do some work, and the owner had been on the roof and hadn't seen anything suspicious near the house like a human body. So police believe that Marilyn's body was left there sometime between Monday night and Tuesday morning. Marilyn was laying on her back on the muddy ground, and it had been raining. There was a blue windbreaker tucked up under her butt, and she had been beaten. There were impressions in her skin that showed that she may have been bound and tied up, and there were clear belt buckle impressions across her body. She had a ligature tied around her neck, but when Robert Hendricks did the autopsy, he determined that Marilyn had died due to brain damage from her beating. She had a massive compound fracture of her skull, her right eye socket was crushed, and she had a white cloth shoved in the back of her throat. The clothes that she had been wearing when she was when she had gone missing were near her body, and this is a particularly rough trigger warning, but there were signs that she had been sexually assaulted, even though there was no semen present. Her killer had left a roughly foot-long stick sticking out of her vagina. I couldn't find a source that could say whether this was done before or after she had died. Ugh. There was mud on the bottom of her shoes that matched the area, and police believe she may have walked herself into the area or been led in there. Nearby, they believe they found the murder weapon, which was a tree branch with blood and what seemed to be human hair on it. Police spoke with the family and got a confusing answer over how Marilyn had gotten to Ypsilanti on that Saturday. 
Marilyn had told her friends that her father had dropped her off. Her mother came into the station and said that Archie had threatened the family and that he didn't actually give Marilyn a ride that day, but that Marilyn's brother and his friend gave police a ride that day. But if she said that, then Archie said he was going to kill the whole family. That's weird. Yeah. So police polygraphed the parents, and Helen's results showed that she was being truthful, and Archie, who had stuck to his story that he had dropped her off, showed signs of deception, and he confessed that he lied and that his son and the friend had been the ones to give Marilyn a ride. When asked if he had killed his daughter, he said no, and the polygraph implied that he was being truthful. Yeah, I... I don't understand her family with the story. I don't know if Archie was just worried that his son would be suspected of being involved... I also thought, like, maybe he was doing something that was illegal, so he wanted to have dropping her off as his own alibi. Yeah. For whatever third-party thing he was involved in. But I don't understand why Marilyn would have said that her dad dropped her off when he hadn't, because she specifically told her friend. It's just a weird lie. So Mike Millage was brought in and questioned by police, but he had a decent alibi with multiple people who were with him, and he was cleared even though Marilyn's family was telling all sorts of bizarre lives, they were cleared as well. Theories emerged that she had been taken out for being an informant, or that she owed a dealer in Detroit $30. Holy shit, $30. But those didn't make much sense. Yeah. $30 then obviously is more than it is now, but, but it's, it's still, still a small amount, not worth murdering someone for. And if she was selling drugs, I'm sure she didn't have a problem owing people money. Be like, I'll sell more drugs and then give you the money then. Or I'll give you drugs yeah. and we can just take the debt off. She owed such a small amount and she wasn't a particularly great informant. <laughs> so none of like neither of those theories made sense. But this case did become a turning point in the investigation. After Marilyn's murder, police agreed unanimously that the cases were likely committed by the same person, and they stopped looking at them as individual murders, and they established a tip line, and within a week, over 800 tips came in. We've got a serial killer. A U of M student had reported to police that on the night of March 24th, around 9 p.m., he had been walking his dog on Getty's Road near where Marilyn's body had been found the next morning. He heard what he described as a long, creepy cry or screech coming from nearby. It was just the once, and he hadn't seen or heard anything weird after. The way that the media reported on Marilyn was so disappointing. She was always labeled as a drug user or a junkie. A paper in Alabama called the Aniston Star ran a headline that just bluntly read, Latest girl was drug user on March 27th, 1969. That's such that's bullshit that's such crap because that why why does that even matter she was brutalized she was murdered that's what matters in an article about her brutal horrible murder a michigan paper reported that marilyn attended swinging parties wore blue jeans and went out with older boys oh my goodness blue jeans (sighs) marilyn's autopsy showed that she had no drugs in her system at the time of her death So she was sober. She was sober when she was horribly murdered, but all the newspapers were like, this druggy girl who wore blue jeans was murdered. She's so different from the nice college co-eds. 
Yeah, instead of instead of focusing on who this murderer possibly could be and, oh, I don't know. Hey, girls, how about we make sure we buddy up and, like, you know, like, watch out for While other people. While we're figuring this out, let's look out for each other. No, we're no, just this gonna... this 16-year-old child wore blue jeans and did drugs and no adult helped her, so we should just condemn her further. Yeah, that's crap. <sighs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> On April 15th, 1969, 13-year-old Don Basom was headed out the door around dinner time. Don was born November 28th, 1955, two months premature, to Louis and Cleo Basom. She was the youngest of four children. She had a brother who was also named Louis, who was a year older than her, and then two older sisters who had already left home and gotten married. Their father, Louis Basom, was diagnosed with cancer, and he died in 1964 when she was just nine years old. In 1969, Dawn was an 8th grader at West Junior High. She had a lot of friends and is described as athletic and extroverted. Her mom stayed a single mom after her father died and seemed to be doing a really good job at raising her younger two kids on her own. Dawn was an average student at school, and Dawn was allowed to have chaperoned parties at her house of both boys and girls, <laughs> where they would, like, play music, I think, and dance. Her bedroom was covered with guitar decals, and she put records all over the wall because she loved music. I like that. The week before April 15th, Dawn had dyed her hair from brown to a strawberry blonde color. And I think this was, like, when you, the first time you dye your hair, when you're, like, a preteen, and you're like, I'm an, I look so cool. This is my own choice. I'm a young adult. <laughs> On this evening, Dawn left the house wearing a white top, blue pants, and an orange sweater. Dawn said she was going to meet a boy named Earl and some friends at Depot Town. Earl. An area. Earl. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. An area of town about a mile from her house that many kids used as a local hangout area had been popular 40-ish years before um, when trains used to go through and they would stop on like a regular basis, but it was now kind of a ghost townish area because the train stopped coming through. Yeah, I think I still remember Or the there was like one train. Me. Yeah, like one train would come through now. It definitely looked like a place where kids would want to hang out. Yeah. Be like, explore. Her mother told her to be careful and be back before dark. Her brother-in-law gave her a ride to Depot Town, which was about a mile from her house. So Depot Town is also located within a few blocks of where the first two women, Mary and Joan, went missing. She was dropped off between 6 and 6.30 and she hung out with a local 17-year-old boy named Earl and a handful of other kids she knew. Earl walked her a few blocks towards home before they were going to be going separate ways, but he offered to continue walking Dawn the rest of the way home, but she said, no thanks, I'm good, and continued by herself. She's so brave. A little while after separating from Earl, Dawn came across two other boys she knew, and they were fishing off a little bridge in the Huron River. They chatted for a while, and then Dawn asked if they would walk her home. They okay. were needing to get home themselves, and Dawn didn't seem scared or upset, so they declined, which they were kids, but also that was rude. Yeah, like, the vibes were off, and they did not pick up on that. Because they're, like, like they're, like, 13, 14-year-old boys. Just trying to go fishing. Nah, I'm fishing. <laughs> you see all of these cool little minnows we caught? That's what's important. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it makes me wonder, too, if Dawn, like, 
encountered something or like if there was a car nearby or just something set her off or maybe even like you sometimes get that feeling of like ooh, like I feel panicky for no reason I need to go home and be safe absolutely when you're a kid and you're running upstairs from the basement and you're like what if something's behind me and then my bedroom was in the basement so I definitely relate to that like at least one light had to be on for me to feel safe I wonder if she had that feeling and that's why she's like hey will you guys walk me home yep So Don continued heading home along the train tracks. Shortly before 7.30, Don was seen by a man on Railroad Street. This man regularly came out to watch the passenger train, the Wolverine, make its short stop to switch tracks before it heads out again. The train arrived on time at 7.25. The man and some crew members from the train said they saw Don hurrying along the tracks. She was just a hundred some yards away from her home on LaForge Road, which is one of the crossroads where Mary Flesher's body was found. Dawn didn't make it. Her mother called the father of one of Dawn's friends around midnight. He was police lieutenant William Mulholland, and Lieutenant Mulholland told Dawn's mother that she wasn't there, but that Cleo should call around to everywhere Dawn might be, and if that doesn't pan out, then to call the police. Yep. Cleo called the police within the hour. Early the next morning of April 16, 1969, a man going into work put a call into police. He had found the body of a young girl off Gale Road near the intersection of Gale and Vreeland. Since this was not far from where Dawn had been reported missing the night before, it wasn't difficult to assume the identity of the victim. And Dawn was identified by Lieutenant Mulholland. Oh. Which had to have been but horrible, really horrible for him. Yeah, because that was his his kid's friend. That mm-hmm. was a little girl that spent the night over at his house. Yeah, and... like he had been in charge of her care at times as yeah. like the adult to look after them. And they're just so being so close to home. Mm-hmm. That's so heartbreaking. Dawn had only her white top on, but that was in rough shape. I believe it had been cut in multiple spots. Her shoes were found about 50 yards from her body, with small fragments of glass pressed into the soles. Dawn had been strangled to death with a black electrical cord that was still tied around her neck. She had slashes from a knife across her body, and pieces of white cloth that came from her shirt were in her mouth. She had a significant amount of dirt on her hands, knees, and feet. It's believed that she died sometime between 8 and 9 on Tuesday night within an hour or two of when she was last seen, and where she was found was not where she had been killed. Police decided to really focus on trying to find the location of where Dawn's murder took place. Up to this point, they hadn't been able to determine for sure where the other girls had been killed. They'd spread out to search abandoned farms, fields, woods, and so forth in the area. Within a few hours, one of the detectives was searching an empty and overgrown farm a mile north of Dawn's home. There were the remains of a farmhouse on the property, and the detectives found a girl's orange sweater outside. So police and forensic techs descended on the property to thoroughly search it. The vacant house was located near the intersection of Gettys and LaForge, about a half a mile away from where Mary Fletcher was found almost two years earlier. The stairs leading to the basement of the farmhouse were littered with broken glass. Oh. Like how there was broken broken glass in her shoes. In the basement, police found traces of human blood and pieces of white fabric that were later confirmed to be part of Dawn's white shirt. There was also some black electrical cord in the basement whose ends had been cut. When compared, it was determined that the cut ends matched the ends of the cord tied around Dawn's neck. They'd found the scene of Dawn's murder and possibly the other girl's murders. Detectives wanted to keep the discovery a secret so that they could stake out the property with the hope that the killer or killers would return, 
but news of their find quickly leaked to the press, and the possibility of a stakeout was gone. Ah, the freaking press. <laughs> Police had gone further than had gotten further than any of the other murders, but they were still far from determining any significant suspects. They kept guard over the farmhouse most of the time, but a week after Dawn's murder, bits of her shirt and some earrings were found in the basement. After calling around and checking within their department, police determined that it was impossible that they had missed these. They said that they searched every inch of the basement and those items hadn't been there, so they believed that at some point the killer had been able to sneak back in. Yeah. Um, but they thought that the killer was taunting them. On May 13th, the farmhouse where her murder took place burned to the ground. Eventually, the police arrested three young men on charges of arson. They'd apparently been drunk and started the fire, but it determined that they weren't involved in the murders. They just wanted to ruin something that possibly could have more evidence (laughs) to help the investigation. No big deal. A few days later, five cut lilac stems were found at the site, and possibly police speculated for the five victims. Uh. Alice Elizabeth Callum was born on Christmas in 1947 in Indiana to Joseph and Dorothy Callum. She was one of three children. Her father worked as a chemist, and at some point the family moved and settled in Portage, Michigan, just south of Kalamazoo. In high school, Alice was described as serious and quiet while still being charming and likable. She was a good student and an avid book reader. After graduating from Portage High School, Alice began attending University of Michigan, and she graduated in May of 1969 with a degree in fine arts. She had decided to stay in Ann Arbor over the summer and take a few more classes to get a teaching certificate. She was considering continuing school and going for her master's degree. Alice's last semester of college, she had met a student from Egypt who was studying for his doctorate at U of M. And Alice seemed interested, and they may have even gone together for a bit, but at the end of the semester, he returned to Egypt. You go, Alice. But Alice told her friends that she might try to get a teaching fellowship at the University of Cairo. It's a true love story. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) On Friday, June 9th, Alice was going about her life as she would every day. She and a friend were renting an apartment in a cute house in Ann Arbor with a big elm tree in the front yard, and her roommate was gone for the weekend visiting her own family. Alice's friend Ben had come over, and they were working on a photography project together. Alice had converted her closet into a darkroom to develop photos. I love that! Ben and Alice had been traveling around the area, photographing the desolate and decaying farms and farmland that was apparently abundant in the area. But it got late, and Ben left his enlarger with Alice, and they made tentative plans to finish developing photos at some point over the weekend. Which, Alice is so cool. Like, we've talked about this before. Like, Alice is such a cool human being. A little cool photographer. She had, like, such a really awesome fashion sense, too, if I remember correctly. The next morning on Saturday, Alice woke up, and we know she did a few errands that day. She mailed a letter, she bought a pair of purple shoes, and she spent time with a girlfriend who dropped Alice back off at her apartment around 8.30 that night. Some people who lived in the building said hello to her as she headed towards her door, And this was the last confirmed sighting of Alice Callum. Alice was excited because she was planning to attend the birthday party of a local musician she had met through mutual friends just a few weeks prior. Yes. There would be about 200 people at the event being held at the Depot House, which is different from Depot Town, where Don Basom went missing in Ypsilanti. The Depot House was in Ann Arbor, and it was an abandoned freight house that, in 1969, was being rented out for events and parties like this. Yeah, that was just, like, the very square building. Yeah. Yeah. 
like right by the train tracks. Depot House was a half mile from Alice's apartment and a 10 minute walk. She got ready in a white mini skirt and purple blouse and she wore a headband that had a letter A affixed to it. She put on a raincoat that had multiple color stripes and none of her friends had come forward saying they had given her a ride and there was no record of any car or taxi service being requested. And I'm assuming that because she put on her raincoat- She was gonna walk. She, she, it's safe to say she had plans to walk. Yeah. Whether or not she made it to the party isn't clear. I personally don't believe she did. Okay. Some people who didn't know Alice themselves stated that they saw Alice there and they saw her dancing until about 2 a.m. A girl told police that she saw a girl in a white miniskirt and a purple shirt making out with a bearded, mustachioed man outside before getting into his car and leaving with him. But when police talked to the girl's boyfriend, who she said could confirm the story, he told police he didn't remember seeing any girl with that description outside, let alone a couple making out. (laughs) He's like, my girlfriend's just a little crazy. (laughs) Or he wasn't paying attention. Maybe he wasn't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That's true. We don't want to discredit her, mate. (laughs) So Alice's friends who were there, as well as an ex-boyfriend of Alice's, say that they never saw Alice at the party that night, but that there was a girl there who looked a lot like Alice to the point that they almost mistook her for Alice themselves. Uh Uh-huh. So there's the belief that other people who didn't actually know her saw this girl And because they looked enough alike, they were like, oh, yeah, I saw that girl. That makes sense. Over the weekend, Alice's photography friend Ben tried to call her, but she didn't answer. He stopped back over and was let into her apartment, and he found the photos still sitting in the rinse for developing. And he thought this was weird because Alice knew not to leave the photos in the fluid for a significant length of time because it ruins the pictures. Yep. I looked up the average time that people leave photos in rinse, and the answers varied from person to person and film type but it seems like it can range from anywhere to a few minutes to no more than an hour. Yeah, I was when I was in photography class in middle school, it was no more than an hour. Yeah, like we did it, like I did photography in high school, and you could develop your film within one class session. Yep. So on Monday, June 9th, three teenage boys were driving on a trail across another plot of abandoned farmland, and they were out to cut lilacs in the area for a local florist when they spotted a body lying just off the trail in two feet of grass, and they called the police. The young woman was wearing a purple shirt that had been cut and had some pieces missing. Mm. Her bra had been cut up the middle, and in her hair was a headband with a pin shaped like the letter A on it. Her black slip had been cut and tucked up under her butt, and the white mini skirt lay on the ground next to her. Her pantyhose had been cut in the thigh and the crotch area, and her underwear had been cut off and placed between two of her toes. There was a single purple shoe at the scene, and she was wearing a velour raincoat with purple, red, white, black, pink, and green stripe. That's fun. There was, I know. <laughs> <laughs> little side note, that sounds like a really cool coat. <laughs> yes. There was eight cents in the right-hand pocket, and in the back of the coat, there was a tag from a store in Kalamazoo. There was no blood pooled under her body, so they were able to determine she'd been killed at a separate location. The girl's body was sent to the U of M morgue to be autopsied by Dr. Robert Hendricks. Thank you, Hendricks. While police officers go question the store where the coat had been purchased in hopes that they might be able to identify the girl, but that didn't pan out. Hendricks, in the meantime, determined the cause of death was from a gunshot from a 22 caliber gun to the top of the head that went downward back towards the spine. And although there were numerous wounds to her body that could have proven fatal, they now determined it was the gunshot. But she had also had two deep cuts to the neck that severed the jugular vein, uh-huh. as well as two stab wounds to the chest which penetrated the heart. 
There was a second gunshot wound to the head, which didn't penetrate her skull. There was a defensive wound from one of the shots also found on her right thumb, indicating that she had reflexively raised her hand to shield herself. Yeah. There were pinprick marks on her thigh as well, they said, which I don't know what that is. There were sperm cells present and other signs of rape. And as unsettling as this is, it's worth mentioning that there's a belief that more than one man might have been involved due to the amount of semen present. Gross, but we have DNA. Yeah. Hendrix estimated she had died between 9 p.m. on Sunday and 3 a.m. on Monday. Oh. Which, again, she went missing Saturday night. So that's like a whole day. That she was just... Yeah. Nearby, the police found the scene of the murder outside the Washtenaw Sand and Gravel Company. They found blood as well as two buttons that matched the buttons from the raincoat. Two brown loafers were found, and one had a little bit of toilet paper with a pink pattern placed in the heel of the shoe. Police released an image of Alice's face and mixed reports on whether it was a cropped photo of her face after death or just an artist's sketch. But either way, they published it in the paper hoping to help ID the girl since they had no missing persons in the area of her description. Okay. On Tuesday, Alice's roommate came into the police station saying that she had been gone over the weekend and when she returned, her roommate was nowhere in the apartment and she still hadn't gotten back. Alice's friend Ben called the police around this time as well. Tuesday night, Joseph and Dorothy Callum sat in their home flipping through a newspaper when they saw their daughter's face as a Jane Doe murder victim in Ann Arbor. Oh. Joseph called Michigan State Police and told them he believed his daughter was the unidentified girl. Her roommate at that point had been shown the body, but had only gasped and looked away before muttering she thought it was Alice. But wasn't probably sure. She was horrified. Yeah, because it's understandable to be horrified from. Mm -hmm. I just, oh my goodness, her parents, they're just in the newspaper. They didn't have any idea. And Ben was brought in to ID Alice, and he did so. And Ben later said that, like, the image of Alice has stayed with him his whole life. That makes sense. When police searched her apartment, they found that her purse and wallet were there, and the toilet paper in the bathroom had a pink pattern on it that matched the toilet paper found in the brown loafer at the murder scene. Her purse and wallet being at home are really, really weird. That makes me think maybe she was just going to, like, stop in at the party for a minute Mm -hmm, and then come back, and that's why she was, like, leaving the photos in the film and the rinse. Then the brown loafers, those were shoes that she already had. Makes me think that she wore those to walk because you don't want to walk in brand new shoes that you buy because she nope. had the purple shoes with her. You can't she was probably in. Yeah, she's probably going to walk to the party in the brown shoes and then switch them out for the purple shoes. Yep, that makes sense to me. Joseph Callum was very angry with the university and seemed to blame them for Alice's death, even stating that he wanted her buried on the president's lawn. He wanted the university to be doing more to protect its students in the area, but I struggle because there's only so much the university can do when somebody decides that they're gonna, like, target women. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, like, if she did live on campus, there would be, like, a curfew, but it wasn't. She's technically still an adult, I think that he just needed somewhere to put Put his anger. That's completely understandable as a parent. Alice was laid to rest on June 14th in Kalamazoo. At this point, the investigation into the murders was getting hectic. There were five different police agencies involved, but after Alice's death, police established a single task force to focus on the serial murders. Police were also being very particular about what information they were releasing to the public, and even at times releasing false details. 
This helped them weed out fake confessions, which were starting to happen. I said confessions. 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 They were fishing for some confessions. <laughs> a man in Tennessee confessed to Marilyn Skelton's murder, but he only knew published details and was in jail at the time of her death. Yes. A man in Flint confessed to killing Alice, but again, he only had information that had been released to the public. And he was able to be ruled out. Why would you confess to a crime you didn't commit? Like, you're like, I want cool People, points. Yeah. But, like, yeah, that really makes you cool, doesn't it? Like, women are definitely going to flock to somebody who's killed women, huh? Good Or thinking. they're already in prison, so they think that if they say they murdered, like, a weak young girl, that the other prisoners are going to be like, wow. I'm not going to mess with them. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, it's uh, a very weird psychology of people who, like, willingly confess to murders they didn't commit. Because that happens. It does. It definitely does happen. But I just, I can't fathom it. They're like, no. Like, it just, the logic for them is there, but for me it's not. It was also at this point a local commune called Trans Love Energies raised money to get a Dutch psychic involved, which was a disaster. And I'm not even going to say his name because he bums me out so much and he just wanted publicity. He, like, took a huge payment from them, like, told them that he needed a certain amount of money to come there. The psychic went on to... money gives me psychic energy. (laughs) The psychic went on to play himself in a movie that was going to be made about the murders called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep in 1977, which never came to fruition, luckily. Yeah, thank goodness. I also think that over time, the false details released by police, combined with the release of the Michigan Murders book in 1976 and the attempted movie in 1977, all played a role in the varying accounts and the like weird information in this case, too, because the movie and the books gave the victims different names. Okay. So it's just all, like, everything feels jumbled and weird. But the weekend after they established this task force, riots broke out between students and landlords on June 16th, so the entire atmosphere around the campuses leading up to this last murder was just pure chaos. So on June 23rd, 1969, 18-year-old Karen Sue Bynuman walked into Wigs by Joan on Washington Avenue in Ann Arbor, Michigan around 12.30 p.m., She was picking up a hairpiece that she planned to wear to a wedding that weekend. She was wearing a casual outfit of cut-off jeans and a blue and white striped sleeveless turtleneck with leather sandals. I love it. I do too. I would wear that outfit. (laughs) She chatted with Joan and the stylist as they showed her how to put the piece in her hair. Karen laughed and told the women that today was quite the day for her. When they asked why, she told them, I've done two things today that I never thought I'd do. Buy a wig and let a stranger give me a ride on his motorcycle. This statement alarmed the two women. Because there's a serial killer on the loose. They looked outside to see a young man with neat dark hair. He was about six feet tall wearing a green and yellow striped polo shirt waiting by a shiny motorcycle. They both told Karen not to let him take her back to campus, and they even offered to give her a ride themselves. Karen thanked them but told them she would walk because it was a nice day out, and about 15 minutes after she'd walked into the shop, Karen left. The two women watched as she approached the man on the motorcycle. They chatted briefly, and then Karen climbed on the bike behind him and rode off. Karen! The two women at the wig shop shook their heads and hoped for the best for Karen. Karen was born on February 10th, 1951, in Grand Rapids to Roland and Marjorie Bynuman, who owned a clock business. I like it. Marjorie. That's a cool name. (laughs) Marjorie. 
She was one of three girls. She had graduated from Creston High School in Grand Rapids in the spring of 1969, and she was in the top third of her class and received a full scholarship to Eastern Michigan University. Good for her. She was planning to major in special education, and she decided to start attending summer classes right away so she could get her pick of the dorms. She was able to get a space in Downing Hall, which was one of the, like, better freshman halls. Her parents had been nervous about her choice in colleges, specifically because of all of the unsolved murders that Mm -hmm. were taking place. But when you have a full ride, I mean... And Karen assured them that she was smart, she would be careful, it wouldn't happen to her. Yeah, she wouldn't trust strangers. Everybody has that mindset to have, like, it won't happen to me. Yeah. It'll be okay. That Wednesday, she mailed her parents a letter that included a newspaper clipping about the murders, and on it, she wrote a note telling them not to worry about her and that she was being careful. Downing Hall had a curfew for their freshmen of 11 p.m., and Karen was absent at the time curfew came around Wednesday night. The Hall's resident faculty advisor, Verna, asked around, and no one had seen or heard from Karen since she left around lunch to pick up her hairpiece. Verna called police and reported that her student had missed curfew. The next call she made was to Karen's father, Roland. Verna asked if Karen had possibly returned home to visit her parents, and Roland told her that Karen wasn't there. And then he got really nervous, because he was like, wait, what do you mean is she here? She's supposed to be there. Yeah. After he got off the phone with Verna, he called the state police in Ypsilanti to report Karen missing. He gave a photo to police of Karen and told them that the photo doesn't do her justice, that she was much prettier. Aww. A loving father. So police tracked Karen's last known whereabouts to the wig shop and spoke with Joan and the stylist. The women gave the police all the details they could remember about the incident. Next to the wig shop was a chocolate shop, and the counter girl who had been working the day before was there and said that she noticed the girl get on the bike and ride off. But the counter girl at the chocolate shop was a big motorcycle fan and identified the motorcycle as a triumph and corroborated what each person was wearing. Nice. Another girl that police interviewed said that a man matching the description and outfit had tried to pick her up in the area on his motorcycle just a little before noon on Wednesday. Police were excited because this is a good step forward in the investigation. They're getting descriptions. They're getting, like, corroborations. Yep. Larry Mathewson was a young patrolman who had just been assigned to homicide at the end of the week. And after seeing the description of the clothing and the man they were looking for, Mathewson thought back to the Wednesday when he was on car patrol in that part of town. He had seen a man he recognized who matched the description to a T. He had played intramural football against him when Mathewson went to EMU. He headed out to the fraternity house he knew this guy was a part of, and the frat house told him that it sounded like John Norman Collins. John loved bikes and fit the description, but he'd been kicked out of the fraternity, and they gave Mathewson his new address. Wonder why he got kicked out of the fraternity. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) He headed over and parked in front of the house where Collins was renting a room. Mathewson couldn't help but notice that Collins' apartment was across the street from where Joan Shell had been living at the time of her disappearance. Hmm. Mathewson found Collins in the garage behind the house, working on his bikes with a friend. Introductions were made, and then what proceeded, I can only imagine, is one of the most awkward conversations, where Mathewson asked John and his friend if they had seen Karen, to which they said they hadn't, and Mathewson told John he had seen him the day Karen went missing, and this seemed to, like, startle John and throw him off, and he wanted to know where Mathewson had seen him, and Mathewson told John he had seen him talking to a different young lady other than Karen, 
And John told him, oh yeah, I'd stopped and I talked with a friend. So Matthewson asked for the girl's name and the address and then said to John, so hey, I noticed too that you were wearing like the exact same thing in the description of the uh, suspect we have. It's very coincidental. Did you happen to see anybody like about your height with like your color hair and haircut (laughs) riding a motorcycle similar to this one that day? That you're working on right now? That it might be a triumph. And John's like, weird. No, I didn't see anybody. (laughs) Not at all. So then a third friend walked into the garage calling out to John that he had his new license plate. And John gave the friend a dirty look. And Matthewson said he would be on his way, but he stopped and started writing down the license plate numbers on the motorcycle. He also noticed, I think, on the car, or maybe the motorcycle, he had, like, the back ends of the license plate were, like, rolled up a little so you couldn't really read the license plate easily. That's weird. That also gives, like, any police officer grounds to kind of uh, pull you over. What's going on with your license plate, sir? So when Matthewson went to write down the license plate numbers on the motorcycles, John got really pissed off and started yelling at Matthewson and told him to go play policeman somewhere else and leave them alone. Like, go do your job somewhere else. And Matthewson was like, I'm doing this for all motorcycles. Like, I'm supposed to do this. (laughs) So on Saturday, Matthewson tracked down the girl who he'd seen John talking to. Her name was Lorraine, and she corroborated John's story that he had stopped when he saw her. They chatted for a bit. She wasn't interested in him. She directed Matthewson, though, towards a girl who had been going with John a few months before named Linda. So Matthewson found Linda and spoke to her. She gave Matthewson a Polaroid she'd taken of John during Christmas the year before, and Matthewson brought it to the women at the wig shop and showed it to them. But they refused to make an identification from a photograph that they didn't think was very clear. Okay, I mean, that's fair. When Matthewson showed the Polaroid to the girl who had said that a similar guy had tried to pick her up that day, she yelled, Shit, that's him. I feel like that's pretty accurate. If you look and you're like, oh, oh, yeah. Matthewson was headed back to the station with this information and name of this very viable suspect. Meanwhile, police were being called out to a house off Huron Drive. A doctor and his wife were taking their evening walk when they had come across the body of a young woman in a gully. The girl was laying on her stomach and wearing only sandals. Sheriff Harvey spoke with the couple who discovered the body and verified that they hadn't told anyone else but the police about the discovery. Sheriff Harvey decided he wanted to use this opportunity to try a stakeout. The prosecutor, assistant prosecutor, and medical examiner were all called out to the scene. The medical examiner went over the body without moving her as Sheriff Harvey explained his plan to Prosecutor Delhi. The prosecutor was furious that the family of the Bynamans hadn't been notified, as they all assumed that this was Karen, and that she was still laying in the gully. I understand why, like, yeah, you don't, like, it is disrespectful in some degrees, but, like, he's already killed four, five Mm -hmm. women, and you don't know, or, you know, like, you don't know how you can catch somebody, so if there's an opportunity to catch the person to stop further crimes... I feel like the parents would understand. See, and it's so funny because we talked about this before, and it's okay that we disagree, but there's, like, certain situations where I'm like, we have such different personalities sometimes. (laughs) Because you feel very much like you, like, get Sheriff Harvey, 
and I very much feel like I get Prosecutor Delhi, <laughs> where I'd be like, what the fuck is happening? Like, why is she still down there? And you'd be like, we gotta catch this guy. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean... This is how we're doing it. And I'm like, this is not how we're doing it. I feel like maybe they could have done it better, but since there was already moments where it was, like, leaked to the media, mm-hmm. they don't want, like... They don't want any sort of chance. And I know that it sucks that you're, like, not going to tell these parents at this point. But, like, I get it. I do. See, and I understand your perspective. But I, I still, understand yours, but yeah, I get it. We, like, we both. I'm the disagree. prosecutor. You're the sheriff. <laughs> we just got to see how this rolls out. <laughs> he told, okay, he told Sheriff Harvey that there's no way that they could leave Karen down in the gully for their stakeout, and the assistant prosecutor offered a compromise and suggested getting a mannequin from the nearby JCPenney's. So the mannequin was acquired, and Karen's body was taken away for autopsy by good old Robert Hendricks. Karen had been dead for at least three days, but her body had only laid in the gully for about 24 to 36 hours. She had been rolled down the embankment from Riverside Drive. Mm. She had been severely beaten half of her face was covered in really rough bruises and one of her teeth had actually been broken in the process of her beating she had been manually strangled to death and she had deep impressions on her wrists and ankles implying that she had been tied up and restrained she had what appeared to be burns on her breasts from corrosive liquid and she had fabric jammed into the back of her mouth and there was evidence that she'd been sexually assaulted Parts of her body had layers of skin that had been stripped away to expose the subcutaneous tissue underneath, and her underwear had been stuffed inside her vagina. The underwear had been torn in the crotch and the side, and they were covered with light, blonde, short hair clippings. Dr. Hendricks determined that she had died between 1 and 3 on the Wednesday she went missing, based on the stomach contents matching what she had for lunch that day. So at this point in time, police have a suspect and a rough plan. Also around this time, Lieutenant Like and his wife arrived home from vacation. Sandra Like noticed some scuff marks on her kitchen floor that weren't there when they had left. In the basement, she also noticed a black spray paint can had been sprayed onto the floor, and a bottle of ammonia was missing, along with a large laundry detergent box that she had planned to use for something. And she was irritated by this because her nephew had been looking after the dog while they were gone, but the dog was kept in the garage. There was no reason for him to be coming into the house and making a mess and taking things. And if you don't remember, the Likes' nephew is John Norman Collins. Damn it, John. So we are going to end part one here. You can follow us on Instagram at Dead Endings Podcast. You can like our Facebook page, Dead Endings Podcast. Or you can send us an email at deadendingspodcast at gmail.com. All of the links to which you can find on our website, deadendings.com. Thank you.